Let's open with prayer, shall we? Send your spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move our hearts to accept what we hear. Purify our will to obey with joy and gratitude. This we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. Some say that when you serve, the one serving gets more out of it than the one being served. Have you heard this? Seven Heartland members, including myself, we have the privilege of spending an hour a week at Hershey Elementary through the program Kids Hope. Now, in my experience there, the saying holds true, the one serving gets more out of it than the one being served. This has certainly been true for my time with Ryan, my mentee. Let me uh, show you a picture of him here. There we are. Look at that train set, man. Ah, oh, that's awesome. So this is true for me. Uh, the, one, you know, the, the, the one who's serving gets more out of it than the one being served. Uh, but it's not true in the way you might think. You see, I have, I have a deep-rooted competitive spirit within me. So when Ryan and I play Monopoly and I take all his properties through discreet skill, I am getting more out of it than he is. When we shoot hoops and he goes in for a layup and I powerfully reject his shot, I am getting more out of it than he is. When we strategize against one another in chess and I beat him in four moves, I assure you that I am getting more out of it than he is. Some say that when you serve, the one serving gets more out of it than the one being served. I hope you can hear my exaggeration and my stories, otherwise you just think I'm really mean right now and should probably be fired from being a mentor. <laughs> Let me just add that by God's grace, sometimes in spite of me, not because of me, 10-year-old <laughs> Ryan is starting to get it. I can see it unfold. Slowly but surely, he is starting to see the love of Jesus Christ for him. Friends, there will be more rejoicing in heaven on that day when he enters the kingdom of God than when Purdue wins the tournament without Isaac Haas. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What I really want to draw your attention to is the playground, the Hershey Elementary School playground. Ryan loves, and I mean loves, being outside. Raining, snowing, freezing, it doesn't matter. Can we go outside today? No, Ryan, it's negative 11 degrees. This kid loves being outside. In fact, with his charm, he's convinced me more than once to take him outside when that did not suit my desires. Now, often when we go outside, there are, uh, off, there are also several other kids on the playground. So I've been able to make a few observations about the playground. Perhaps you have made them as well at some point in your life. Observation number one, there are bullies, and then there are those who are bullied. Observation number two, sometimes the one bullied in one circumstance becomes the one who does the bullying in another circumstance. The bullied becomes the bully. Observation number three, what happens on the elementary school playground also happens on the playground of adult life. It's just adults are generally more subtle with their bullying. It's not as obvious to the naked eye. Often the bullying is more sophisticated and hidden, but it's just as real and it's just as harmful. 
In our scripture text for today, we see a brutal picture of an adult being bullied. This man is humiliated, put to shame, mocked, ridiculed, and physically abused. This is not unlike the cruelty we see on the elementary playground. It's just amped up a notch and cloaked with military power and other outward appearances that make it look more acceptable to the average bystander. But there's something about this encounter between the bullies and the one being bullied that makes it remarkably different from every other instance of everyday bullying. In this encounter, the bullied is actually the one with the power. In fact, the bullied, he's the one who possesses all the power in the world. Though nobody knows it, the one who is bullied has all the strength and power to stop it. Nevertheless, he submits himself to the humiliation. He does this in order to rescue the very ones who are humiliating him, even to rescue you and me. The story is told by the eyewitness John in chapter 19. Listen to the word of the Lord. These words are trustworthy and true. Then Pilate had Jesus taken and whipped. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. Over and over they went up to him and said, Greetings, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Pilate came out of the palace again and said to the Jewish leaders, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here's the man. When the chief priests and their deputies saw him, they shouted out, crucify, crucify. Pilate told them, you take him and crucify him. I don't found, find any grounds for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders replied, we have a law, and according to this law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this word, he was even more afraid. He went back into the residence and spoke to Jesus. Where are you from? He said. Jesus didn't answer. So Pilate said, you won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from above. That's why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment on, Pilate wanted to release Jesus. However, the Jewish leaders cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he led Jesus out and seated him on the judge's bench at the place called Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was about noon on the preparation day for the Passover. Pilate said to the Jewish leaders, here's your king. The Jewish leaders cried out, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate responded, what? Do you want me to crucify your king? We have no king except the emperor, 
the chief priests answered. Then Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. A crown of thorns and a purple robe. Twice these articles of clothing are mentioned in our passage. A crown of thorns and a purple robe. They are the bully's choice of fashion for Jesus' day of death. But why these? One word, humiliation. The bullies intended to thoroughly humiliate Jesus. The Greek word for crown is Stephanos, which I know because Stephanie told me means the crowned one. (laughs) Stephanos, crown. In the first century, it was a wreath of victory placed on the head of whoever finished first place in the Roman games. Did you know that the first century Roman world had something very similar to our Olympic games? And whoever won the event would receive a Stephanos, a crown, a wreath of victory to announce to the world that this person is the best, number one, victorious, the champion. But Jesus is given a crown of thorns. Some suggest the thorns added to the physical torture he would have experienced. This may be, but the torture of the human spirit was the goal. Jesus was being humiliated and torn down. So a wreath of shame was placed on his head to announce to the world that this man is cursed beyond all other men. He's the worst. He's the last. He's the loser. The purple robe achieved the same goal. There were two ways back then to produce the color purple. The first way was very costly. They had to extract the brilliant violet color from one particular type of shellfish. This style of purple was reserved for royalty. It was the genuine stuff, and everybody respected the one who wore it. However, the soldiers would not have had access to this royal type of purple. So the second way to produce the color of purple was to extract it from the dried bodies of a type of beetle that lived on oak trees. Friends, you can't make this stuff up. (laughs) But this type of purple was considered second-class imitation purple. So why in the world am I sharing this weird information with you? Because the purple robe that was placed on Jesus received its color from the dried-up dead bodies of beetles. It's the second-class imitation stuff that robed Jesus on the day of his death. This had the effect of exposing to the world the truth about Jesus, or at least the truth that the soldiers believed, that Jesus was a fraud and a rebel. If he were a true king, you see, he'd be clothed with royalty. He'd be clothed with genuine purple. But look at this dirty, bloody peasant with his cheap imitation purple and a crown of thorns. He's no king. His humiliation proves it. The closest modern-day equivalent, at least that I can think of, to Jesus' crown of thorns and his purple robe would be this. The orange jumpsuit, slapped with a number, finished off with handcuffs and ankle chains. Imagine 
Jesus in prisoner's clothes, handcuffed, chained at the ankles, paraded around town square to receive the sneers and the rage and the ridicule of the general public. That's what the soldiers were going for, and that's what Jesus endured for us. Over and over, they went up to him and said, Greetings, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. In this way, Jesus is bullied and humiliated. In this way, God endures humiliation. But before you believe the soldiers, stick with the story to its conclusion. It might just be that God's got something up his sleeve. Before we go there, we must consider our own situation. <laughs> Who are we most like in the story? Are we most like Jesus, the one who was bullied and humiliated? Or are we most like the soldiers, the bullies, who bring shame to others? What about you? I want to suggest that for most of us, at some point in our lives, we are both. <laughs> we are both. First, we are the bullied. Now, many of us in this room consider ourselves adults. So remember what I said at the beginning. Adult bullying takes a different form. It's more subtle, more sophisticated. It's hidden behind half-truths and cheap smiles. When I say that we are bullied, what I mean is that people around us say things and do things that damage our reputation. I think this is true for most of us. Maybe not all, but most. At some point in your life or another, maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor, a family member, maybe it's a Facebook friend. I pray and hope that you're not being bullied now, but maybe you are. People gossip about us. Isn't that true? Isn't that the woman who fill in the blank? People slander us, saying things that are untrue, in a way that damages others' perceptions of us. Yeah, I heard he wants people stereotype us, whether it's because of our age, our gender, our job, our ethnicity, our religious beliefs. What a close-minded, judgmental. People who don't really know us think they know us, and therefore they say things behind our backs. Perhaps they just think them without saying them, but eventually we find out, and it hurts. It hurts just like the seven-year-old hurts when he's picked on after school. We try to pretend like it doesn't, but it does. Sometimes the wounds go very deep. Maybe this isn't your experience. I hope it's not, but I know for some of you it is. In fact, for some of you, I haven't gone far enough. Your own experience of shame and humiliation goes much deeper. If this is the case... The word that you need to hear today is this. God endures humiliation for the one who is humiliated. God endures humiliation to rescue the humiliated. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh, God incarnate, willingly undergoes humiliation in order to identify with and rescue the humiliated, the ashamed, the belittled, the one who is picked on, the one who is picked last, the scapegoat, the unjustly blamed, 
friends, the God-man, Jesus Christ, became all of these things for us so that we might become vindicated, glorified, and never ashamed again. Listen to how Cyril of Alexandria from the 4th century in North Africa, listen to how he proclaims this good news so long ago. Jesus, he preaches, was scourged unjustly so that he might deliver us from the punishment we deserved. He was beaten and struck so that we might beat Satan who had beaten us. For if we think correctly, we shall believe that all of Christ's sufferings were for us and on our behalf, and that they have the power to release and deliver us from all those disasters we have deserved because of our rebellion against God. Do you believe this? Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. So we are bullied on some time or another, and Jesus is willingly bullied for our sake to deliver us from the shame and humiliation that seeks to keep us down and out. But that's not the full story. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we need to admit that we are not only bullied, but from time to time we are the ones who do the bullying. No matter how saintly you are, the gravitational pull of sin, evil, and the devil remains for each one of us in this present evil age. Can you remember a time when you have been the one doing the bullying in one way or another? Again, I'm not talking about the easy-to-spot fistfight type of bullying that we see on the school playgrounds. I'm talking about the interesting way we demand our own ways. I'm talking about the creative attempts we make at gaining control over others. I'm talking about the things we do and say to prevent ourselves from feeling weak and vulnerable, but that are hurtful to others. Sometimes, sometimes we even bully ourselves. There you go again, Brandon. We may not be aware that we're doing it, because some of us don't really know ourselves very well. <laughs> Yet, according to reformer John Calvin and countless others, get this, we cannot know God very well without knowing ourselves very well. When we don't know ourselves very well, we don't realize when we're playing the part of the bully. I'm talking about the innocent gossip, the casual critique that cuts someone down, the disregard of others' feelings. I'm talking about helping someone out, but with the hidden agenda of getting something out of it later, service with strings attached. All of these things are a more subtle and sophisticated form of bullying. They don't look or sound a lot like bullying, but they share the same source, and that's the point I'm trying to make. It's about not wanting to feel weak, not wanting to feel vulnerable, not wanting to feel out of control, not wanting to be seen as small. So we assert ourselves and our demands over another. We determine how to lift up our own reputation, how to get our own way. And we know, we know from experience that the easiest way to do this is to put down or manipulate others. Friends, this is adult bullying. It's less obvious, but it's no less damaging to ourselves 
and to those in our wake. What I'm talking about here is similar to what the Apostle Paul is talking about in his second letter to the young pastor Timothy. Paul knows that Timothy needs to know, (laughs) needs to be warned that there are bullies out there. So he says this, people will be selfish and love money. They will be the kind of people who brag and who are proud. They will slander others. They will be disobedient to their parents. They will be ungrateful, unholy, unloving, contrary, and critical. They will be without self-control and brutal, and they won't love what is good. They will be people who are disloyal, reckless, and conceited. They will love pleasure instead of loving God. They will look like they are religious, but deny God's power. They will, they will look like they are religious, but deny God's power. Certainly, you and I have been guilty of one or two of these crimes from time to time, haven't we? <laughs> Certainly, we too find ourselves among the bullies of the world. Even we who call ourselves Christians, certainly we too are tempted by the desire to assert our own power and control when we feel weak or vulnerable. You know what I'm talking about? Is it just me? Eugene Peterson knows what I'm talking about. If you recall, Eugene Peterson is the author of the Bible. Not exactly. The, he's the author of the popular paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Does anybody know The Message? One, two, three, no? Okay. Peterson, so he's actually a small church pastor, and, and later in his vocation he became a pastor to pastor, but he's also a, a scholar. Now listen to the story, though. He's a good man, according to most. But listen to the story that he tells about his experience of being bullied as a kid. He writes this. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing bless those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. Some sixth sense bullies have, I suppose. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian and taunted me with, Jesus, sissy, Jesus, sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I had better get used to it. She also said I was supposed to pray for him. One day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us in the afternoon and started jabbing me. That's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled to him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. Then, then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. So I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. 
Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) I love that story. I love it because it's told by Eugene Peterson, this gentle old man. (laughs) But the story illustrates several things for us. It illustrates just how easy it is to forget the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. How easy it is for us, for for the Bible verses, to disappear in moments of stress and weakness. The story also shows how the bullied can just as easily become the bully. Now, in this case, one could argue that he was simply defending himself, but we all know it's not uncommon for the one who's bullied by someone bigger to find someone smaller and do the exact thing. The most insightful thing I find about the story comes from another author and pastor, John Ortberg. Pastor John writes this about the story. He says, everybody can laugh at that story, everybody except Garrison Johns, but the truth is, Many of us beat on the lost, just like Peterson did that day. Granted, we may not use our fists, but we can be just as hurtful with our mouths or our attitudes. We may be able to get the lost to say the right thing if we apply enough pressure, but if we want them to truly be changed by Jesus and his gospel, then we must apply love. Friends, the way of Jesus is the way we must apply love. On that bloody Friday that we call good, Jesus applied love by willingly wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He remained silent except when he needed to speak the truth with gentleness. And so he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah written hundreds of years earlier. He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Friends, this is the Jesus who calls to us, come, follow me. Are we seriously ready to follow Jesus? Are we honestly prepared to walk the road that Jesus walked? Come, follow me, Jesus calls to each and every one of us. Come and see. He gladly invites us into his glorious kingdom of love. But he's also straightforward about the cost that comes with it in the present. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is not our preferred religion. It's not. That's why we need the season of Lent, to overthrow our idealism. Our preferred religion is well stated a long time ago by theologian Richard Niebuhr. He said this, he said, we prefer a God without wrath who brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. That's the religion many of us prefer, but it's not the gospel, it's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith reveals a God who endures humiliation. And that is how God satisfies God's wrath. The Christian faith reveals a God who justifies sinners. Both both the bullied and the bullies. 
reconciling them not only to God, but also reconciling them to one another. That's hard work. The Christian faith speaks of a kingdom that is not of this world, and its king is the crucified one, Jesus Christ our Lord. The soldiers have it wrong, I think. This is no humiliated fraud standing before the crowds. This is the one who is about to become king in the most curious way of all. The cross is his coronation. And in a twist of irony, the soldiers and Pilate had it right all along. Hail, king of the Jews! Here's the man. Here's your king, Jesus, the Son of God, the true king of the world. Friends, this is the jaw-dropping gospel truth. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us who take Christ's name upon ourselves by calling ourselves Christians? It means we must first believe the good news of Christ's forgiveness, Christ's unearned mercy. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, endures the worst of humiliation to rescue us, those of us both who have played the part of the bully and the bullied. We are forgiven of every sin in Jesus Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. It also means that we can take comfort in Jesus' powerful presence, which never leaves us nor forsakes us, even when we endure suffering, especially when we endure suffering. I am with you always, Jesus hopes to persuade us, and nothing, nothing can separate us from his intensely personal love. Finally, it means that we are called to risk to lay down our lives, to know ourselves well enough to let die whatever needs to die, and to endure whatever we must endure, all for the sake of rescuing others. Friends, we're the body of Christ, whose spirit lives in us, and like it or not, victory still comes through the way of the cross. If we truly want to be disciples who make disciples, as our mission statement says, oh, the things we must be willing to give up. But oh, <laughs> oh, the joy that awaits us over even one lost boy like Ryan when he enters Christ's glorious kingdom of love. I want to close with a prayer that's been so crucial to my own spiritual journey. I love this prayer because it exposes two lies that I've believed fiercely throughout my Christian life. Two lies. The first lie is that if I suffer with Christ, the suffering will last forever and my life will be miserable. The second lie is that the way to achieve life and peace is by doing everything you can to avoid suffering. These two lies I believed for a long time. I could never quite overcome the truth of Jesus' claims. I could never quite ignore the compelling call of the crucified Christ. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Here's the prayer that helped me believe in the King, whose victory comes first by dying, whose throne 
is a cross and whose crown is made of thorns. Would you, would you say this prayer together with me in closing? Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord.